Good morning. Welcome to Bethel. How's everyone this morning? Good, man. I am so glad you are here. We are in week two of our series, Name Above All Names. And we looked at last week that a name is important. When you think about a name, many of you know that I work for a bank as well. The bank I work for is in the middle of a merger. And they decided, as a part of the merger, to come up with a new name. Now, a name is important. When you're in the corporate world, they spent, the bank spent millions of dollars with this high-end New York marketing firm to come up with a new name with focus groups and how does this name make you feel and how do you respond to this name? Because a name is important. So let me ask you, whenever you hear the name, let's just say Apple, how do you feel? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that name? Or let's use another one that's a little closer to home for us here in Orlando, Disney. When I say the word Disney, some of you have these feelings of, oh, this is, that's my happy place. And others of you have feelings of, oh, I hate crowds. You know, whenever you think about the name of God, what comes to your mind? How does that make you feel? You have a name. And that name is important to you. God has a name, and understanding that name is crucial to knowing him. So in this week two of Name Above All Names, we said last week, your view of God determines everything else about you. Your view of God determines everything else about you. For most people, God is a mystery. Some people aren't sure if he exists. Or if he does, how could you know? But when I talk about having a relationship with him, so many people are confused. How can you have a relationship with God? All of these issues are addressed through knowing the name of God. And we started out last week in Exodus chapter 34, and we'll be there each week through this series. It's a place we're working from where God declares his name to Moses. We said last week that in this Exodus passage, there's 13 things we learn about God from this one chapter alone that God tells about himself to Moses. And today we're going to focus on the holiness of his name. You're going to see his holiness all throughout this passage. You know, holiness is the most commonly used descriptive word about God by Moses throughout Exodus and Leviticus. He uses it 124 times through those two books. Holiness is one of those words that most Americans find bland or unattractive. They don't like it. They think of it as some kind of bright, white, colorless, colorless light. They like to think of it as, you say something as holy as like weirdly religious is whenever is the the thought that comes with that name. If you say so-and-so is so holy, that's usually not a compliment, is it? It's not something you would give as a compliment. But holiness, it means perfection. Perfection. Our word holiness in English comes from the root word whole, like wholeness. It is the essence of goodness. That is the root. It's something that, and I'll show you, that you learn for, that you yearn for, whether you know it or not. We want holiness in every part of our relationships. 
Let me demonstrate that for you. Nobody wants a spouse that is unfaithful or a boyfriend who lies or a friend who exploits us. We want holiness in our business dealings. No one wants to deal with a contractor who shows up late, does shoddy work, or overcharges us. We all want holiness in every aspect of our relationships. Let me look at it. Let's look at it in Exodus chapter 33. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. If you remember last week, we talked about Moses is up on Mount Sinai. The nation of Israel is down at the bottom of the mountain. They had left Egypt from their time in captivity. They'd seen all of these miracles of God delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh, parting of the Red Sea. And they're coming up in the, in the Sinai Peninsula now, on their way to the land that God had promised them. And Moses goes up on the mount to meet with the Lord God. And as he's up there, he asks to see the Lord. The Lord said, you can't see me and live because I am holy and you are sinful. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. And as I pass by, I will hold my hand out to shield you from seeing me. And you can see the back of me as I leave. It's ironic that when God makes his goodness pass before Moses, that goodness is so good that it could actually kill Moses. Then God tells Moses to take the Ten Commandments that he'd given to him and hold them in his hands, which expresses the true moral expression of his goodness, truth, justice, and purity. And then he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and covers him with his hand so he doesn't die. And then verse 5 he says, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord descends. He is high and glorious above the earth. He is a cloud. And even though he comes close, he is still mysterious. He is hidden. You can't see his shape. And that's where we left off last week with Moses on the mount with God. Let's take you to another passage today outside of Exodus where we get an even more in-depth look at who God is and his holiness. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And that says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Let's pause there before we go to the rest. And let's talk about who Uzziah was. Uzziah was a beloved king in the nation of Israel who reigned in Israel for 52 years. And he had led well, pleasing God, right up until the very end when his pride got the best of him. Now, a good king for 52 years, but at the very end, he got cocky. And one day he decided he did not need the priest of God to offer sacrifices in the temple of God. That he could do it for himself. It was a flagrant violation of the laws that God had set up for the Jewish people. And the priest would come in as he went up to try to offer the sacrifice. They came in to try to stop him, and he looked at them and said, Stop 
back off or I will kill you. I'm going to do this myself. I am the king. I rule this land. I will offer the sacrifices. And so the priest backed off. And at just that moment, leprosy, Scripture says, broke out on his forehead and ate its way all the way down his body. And shortly thereafter, he died. Well, as you can imagine, this left the nation of Israel in utter disarray. Their leader, who had led them for a half century and was a good king for almost all of his reign, is now dead by God. The very foundations of the nation were shaken. And Isaiah gets this vision from God with this background taking place. Verse 2, he said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. You know, I find it interesting all throughout Scripture, even when the, the, the angel appears to Mary, we just looked at that at Christmas time. The sight is so terrifying that the angel always has to say, fear not. <laughs> fear not. Because the sight of an angel is just such a terrifying thing that the angel has to say, fear not. Verse 3. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy. We're going to come back to that, why it's three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Hebrew language uses superlative as a way of expression, the re repetition to express the superlative. For example, a, a deep pit is called a Hebrew pit pit. A pure gold was called gold gold. The holiness of the Lord is the only instance in the Old Testament a superlative requiring a threefold repetition. It's saying he is pure and undefiled holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is the most defining characteristic. Notice the angels do not say about God, power, power, power. They do not say about God, love, love, love. They say, holy, holy, holy. So what does this word mean? Literally in Hebrew, the word is kadosh. It means set apart. It means different. It means distinct. He is different than everything else in this universe. He is set apart from everything else. But we see here from Isaiah in this account encounter that he has with God through this vision. We see that he is set apart in at least two ways. God is set apart by his awesomeness. He is set apart by his awesomeness. He is high and lifted up. He dwells in a clouded mystery. The temple is filled with smoke. Often we want to reduce God to a slightly bigger, stronger, slightly more intelligent version than us. But when we see that and how we demand he gives us an explanation for his actions, we say, God, you're, you'd better explain yourself. 
And I better see some good coming out of this. And if you don't show me the reason for the, re- the reason why I'm going through this, I'm going to quit believing in you and I'm going to rebel against you. We think that we can demand things of God as if we could bring down God from heaven and put him on trial before us as though he was one of us. But God is not one of us. Why? Because he is set apart. He is distinct. And at the end of the day, we are not in a position to judge him. Isaiah 55 tells us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. God is saying, do not flatter yourself that you could even understand me by me explaining it to you. We are not peers. And we often come to the, the, clash, the classic objection of evil that people like to say, if God is all-powerful, he could stop evil. You've probably heard that if you've been in a college class before. The missing premise in that formulation is God is also all-wise. He is also all-wise, and if his wisdom is high above ours as his power is above ours, it makes sense that a lot of his purposes may not be immediately perceptible to us. Or even that we could even understand why he allows those things to happen. You know, I like to think about it this way. We think about God and his greatness. Think about this. The sun generates enough energy in one second to supply all the U.S. energy needs for 13 billion years. That's crazy to think about. For 13 billion years, the sun generates enough energy for the U.S. for 13 billion years. God spoke the sun into existence. He just said, let there be light. And there was. That is our God. That's the God that we want to question and bring down to our level. And we want to judge. My question is, If God's wisdom is as high above mine as his power is above mine, am I really in a place to hold God in account? No, we're not. It's like Evelyn Underhill, the the famous British political writer of the early 20th century, said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. I like that quote. So we see that God is set apart by his awesomeness, God is also set apart in his moral perfections. God is pure goodness with no mixture of bad. He is without injustice, without deceit, without impurity. His goodness is so good that it cannot tolerate evil. Goodness so good that a sinner like Moses cannot see it and live. It says in Habakkuk 1.13, you are of such pure eyes you, can even, you cannot even look at evil. Let's keep going in Isaiah's vision that he has, verse 4. It says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let me tell you something. 
God's holiness, it is terrifying. It is terrifying. The angels in this passage, they have their faces covered. The pillars of the temple, which aren't even people, are shaking with fear. Isaiah, the prophet of God, the man with the message, falls on his face and says, I'm lost, I'm ruined, I'm undone. We like to talk about God sometimes as a buddy, as a co-pilot, or as my homeboy, or however we want to refer to God. Sometimes we like to think of him as a precious moment to God who warms us up when we're cold. But we forget that God is holy, and his holiness is terrifying. When the angels see him, they cover their faces. Prophets fall down as dead men. When you think about the name of God and how we use the name of God in the little phrases that we throw out in our frustration, in our little quips that we use, we forget that our God is holy. God's holiness is terrifying because it reveals our goodness not to be good. Isaiah says, I am unclean, I am lost, I am ruined. I like how the old King James Version says, I am undone, because the word in Hebrew implies that I'm being torn apart psychologically, is what Isaiah was saying in this passage. He's saying the glue that held Isaiah's life together, his sense of goodness is nothing before God. When God's presence begins to enter your life, that's how you always feel. The sign that you don't know God at all is that you feel pretty good about yourself. I'm a good person. I do good things. The message in culture is to become spiritual, is to find your center, to be good about yourself, to become the best you. That's a phrase that's popular today. And a lot of your, your pop psychology or even your corporate you know, pep talks, they'll talk about being the best you that you can be. You see, we are, are creatures of comparison. We tend to console ourselves as people by comparing ourselves to others. We like to say, oh, I'm not as bad as that person. Man, I'm such a better husband than that guy is a husband. I'm such a better father. I'm a lot better coworker. A lot of times when we look at the around us, we like to look at, oh, man, I should get the raise because I do so much more work than all everybody else on this team. We love the idea of comparison. The assumption we like to think of is that God grades on a curve. Everybody really, everybody did really bad, so the only one that failed the guys that did really, really bad. We like to think about, oh, I'm, I'm okay because I'm not one of those guys that are the, the child porn people or the terrorist or whatever it is. So I'm good because I'm not one of those the murderers or really bad people. But when we see the true holiness of God, like Isaiah saw here, all of our goodness, it falls apart. Because we see that the standard is not one another. We see real goodness and we see how sick and twisted and deformed all of our hearts are before a holy God. God's holiness 
is terrifying because it reveals our strengths to be weaknesses. Notice Isaiah, he talks about his lips in this passage. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. That's kind of strange to say. But for a prophet, his lips, the prophet proclaims the message of God in the Old Testament. So his lips would have been his pride and joy. It's how he proclaims to the people. For Isaiah, his lips would represent his greatest strength, the way a pianist feels about his fingers, or how a quarterback feels about his arm, or a scientist feels about his mind. But God revealed that to even Isaiah, that is worthless. That's why he feels undone, even his best. The thing that he does best, which was the oratory, which was the proclaiming, was not sufficient. The holiness of God doesn't make Isaiah ashamed of his weakness. It makes him look at his strengths and realize that in light of the holiness of God, they are not strengths at all. And When that happens, you feel undone because the glue that you think holds life together is gone. So let me ask for you, what is it in your life right now that you take pride in, that you think is holding your life together? Is it your bank account? What's your glue? Is it your business savvy? Maybe for students in here, is it your athletic ability? Or is it your social relationships? Your looks? Maybe it's your family you think that holds things together? Maybe you think it's because I'm such a great salesman they'll never get rid of me because I'm the top salesman in the company and you take comfort in that. George Whitfield, who in the early 1700s was a famous preacher, he started the, the first or he started the Great Awakening here in the United States. He had only two points to all of his sermons. People would come from hundreds of miles around to listen to George Whitfield speak. One of the things I like reading about is the relationship between George Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin being kind of this borderline atheist, being, I guess you'd say, a deist, would come and listen to George Whitfield speak these messages and the letters that they would write back and forth to each other are pretty fascinating. But he had two points in his message. First was, repent of your sins. Okay, that's quite a, an obvious first point. It makes sense. But the second was, in his sermons, was repent of your strengths, which we find kind of weird to think about. He'd say, because you use those as a source of false confidence that you really don't need God. And he says, because you use them to try to cover up your sins and justify yourself before God. What do you think will justify you before God? What do you think holds your life together? Whatever that is, that is your greatest source of sin. Because that strength takes your eyes off of your hope in God's grace, and it makes you rely on your strength and not his. Our strength is nothing. We need God. Wherever you are weak, you will eventually naturally depend on God. It's where you are strong. That's where you will forget him. Verse 6 of Isaiah. 
Then one of the seraphim, that's one of the angels, flew to me, meaning Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Out of the darkness, this angel flies with a coal from the altar and he touches Isaiah's mouth with this coal. Now you might be tempted to think, is this purification by fire? No. It says it's burnt. It, you know, it's not what it is. That's not an Old Testament idea. We don't see that metaphor used anywhere, anywhere in the Old Testament. Rather, this coal represents a fire that has already been spent. The coal symbolizes a fire that's already burnt itself out for a substitutionary sacrifice. His justice was satisfied. You see, the holiness of God is not just terrifying, but it's cleansing. It's cleansing. God's infinite goodness means that he not only is filled with justice, but he's also filled with grace and love. We see, of course, even more clearly than Isaiah because we know that the lamb pictured in the sacrifice is Jesus. Isaiah did not know of Jesus, but we now can look back and understand this passage even more, understanding Jesus. And though he is so holy that he cannot survive in his presence, even though Isaiah is not holy enough to survive in his presence, he is so loving that he offers himself up. Jesus, he offers Jesus up in our place so that we could survive with God forever. God is so righteous that he had to send Jesus to die for our sins, but he's also so loving that he was glad to do it. That's what it means for God to be holy. When Isaiah has this moment, here's his response. Just think about what you would do being caught up in this vision and seeing these crazy things happening. But here's how Isaiah responds. It propels him outward. Verse 8, it says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah said, I want to be your servant. I want to volunteer. The holiness of God had gripped him so much. You know, it's impossible to have a genuine experience with the grace of God and not become an evangelist for that grace. Charles Spurgeon said, either you become a missionary or an imposter because a burning heart will soon find itself a flaming tongue. Meaning if you truly experience the grace of God, you cannot help but tell about it. Second, it gave Isaiah a ridiculous amount of confidence. Notice how God described Isaiah's assignments in verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God says to Isaiah, I need a prophet who will preach to these hard-headed nimcompoots for 30 years. For 30 years, and they will not listen. Isaiah says, I'll do it. I'll do it, God. 
Even though these people are knuckleheads, I'll do it. Imagine spending 30 years of your life investing into people and they don't hear it. They don't hear the message. What gives someone like that confidence? Can you imagine? After a couple of years, I'd be like, peace. You guys deserve what you get. I'm going to go somewhere else to people that would listen to me. But Isaiah did it for 30 years years. What gave him confidence to do that? The understanding that the holy God is with you and approves of you and stands by your side. That's all the confidence we need. No one ever wrote a glowing review of Isaiah's ministry. No one ever came up to Isaiah and said, you know, your books and sermons have really been a help to me. I can see that God's hand is really on you. He never got that kind of encouragement. People thought of him as a failure. In fact, the Jewish history books tell us that Isaiah's ministry came to an end because the king put him inside of a log and cut the log in half. But Isaiah said, that's okay. Why? Because my God is with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. He will supply my every need. He waits for me to the end of the journey when he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And if God is for me, who can be against me? You see, the holiness, the transcendence of God is not just scary, but it's immensely comforting. It's comforting. If you know God is with you, you'll have the power to roll out of bed every day and face the world. You'll have the ability to live without the approval and fear of men and women around you. You won't be so sensitive to criticism. You'll live every day with hope, confidence, and joy when you know that God is with you. See, some of you are where Isaiah was in this passage. You remember how we opened it up. The nation was dismayed. They had lost their king of 52 years. They didn't know what was going to happen. Some of you are right now there today. You're discouraged. You don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. No one praises you. Life is such a struggle every moment of every day. Others of you, where the nation of Israel was, you're like, in the year that King Uzziah died, the foundations of your life have been shaken. Maybe that's taken place over the last couple of years. You face cancer, marriage falling apart, you've lost a job, and you're worried about what the future will bring. Is everything in my life just going to fall apart? Am I going to be okay? You need to see that where others fail you, your parents, your boss, a leader, a friend, you need to see that God never does. God never fails you. Others may fall from their thrones, but God never will. At first, we may be resistant to a high and holy God, a God that is set apart from us, but that's the only kind of God 
That is the only God that is worthy of our worship. It's the kind of God we crave, a God who is pure and just and infinite in his love. All of your life, you have been looking for this kind of God. That's the God that Jesus is. You see, Isaiah uses the phrase high and lifted up. One other time in scripture, in the the preamble to Isaiah chapter 53, his description he gives of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus had an experience similar to Isaiah's. Jesus came face to face with God, and though his lips were pure, he reached himself down and wrapped himself in lepers' rags. But no angel came with a coal to cleanse his lips because he was the lamb who was given to die on that altar. Instead of feeling like he would be torn apart, he was literally torn to shreds on that cross on our behalf. What Isaiah feared and deserved, which was death, but he never got, Jesus got in his place and ours. The cross reveals the holiness of God, that our sin is so bad, so bad before a holy God that we had to die. God is so loving that he was willing to send Jesus to die in our place. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know him? The only way you can know him is through Jesus. He was given as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, paying our penalty and absorbing the curse for our sins in our place. But he won't force it upon you. He gladly gives it to you in grace, through repentance, and faith. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? That name is so precious. That name is so important. Let's pray. God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through scripture. God, I pray this week that as we use your name, it'll be a way that is reverent to you. God, I pray this week that as we think about and ponder your holiness and how terrifying that that can be because we realize how sinful a people we are, God, may we have confidence knowing that you are with us and that you approve of us through Jesus. God, I thank you that you are set apart, that you are high and lifted up and worthy to be praised. May our lips Praise your name this week. May our bodies glow with the glory of your name, of being created in your image and likeness this week. May our relationships bring you 
glory this week. May the way that we respond to life struggles be a reflection of your holy name. And we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.